Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Also, Jess, there's just no topping your five-word unhelpful title this week. No, I, <laughs> I know. Sorry about it. I, I read it and I laughed out loud and I was like, shit, what am I going to do? I can't beat that. I can't. No. It's also like, it was hard to top for the summary title because I was like, this is this is the title I want to use. Yeah. So I've written three summary titles and I don't like any of them. So <laughs> Oh, whatever. well, that's fine. Yeah. It is what it is. You can't beat uh, the surprise uh, lesbians. You just can't. I know. In a title or in real life. You just can't. No. Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week, we are talking about John Lilly's Galatea, and we are thrilled to welcome our guest expert, Joey Gamble. Hi, Hi. Joey. Hi, Joey. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being with us. <laughs> That's better. That's better. Not maybe having, you're not having, but welcome. <laughs> and we're thrilled and we're so excited. Um, so why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself, Joey? Sure, sure. So um, my name is Joey Gamble. Um, I am just finishing up my PhD right now in the joint program in English and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan, um, where I'm writing a dissertation about how people learned how to have sex in the 16th and 17th centuries in England, mostly. Um, and in the fall, I'll start a new job as an assistant professor of English at the University of Toledo. Yes, you will, baby. That's amazing. So Congratulations. You. Thank you. Thank you. That's so awesome. Oh I am so yeah. curious about how you arrived at that dissertation topic, like how people learned how to have sex. In other words, like how they talk to each other, like a young woman, like night before her wedding, her mom sits her down and talks to her about it. Is that what you're talking? That kind of thing? Like the mechanics yeah, of sex? Yeah. Yeah. There's actually oh a gosh. whole genre of text that is almost exactly what you just said. I mean, they're fictional dialogues, but um, it's uh, they um, often a young woman will come to an older friend of hers who's already married and say, I'm about to get married. I've heard about the sex thing. I'm not really sure <laughs> how it works. Can you tell me? And then her friend tells her in great detail, often um, with some practical demonstrations. Oh and yes. um, and then later, later the, um, the main character will come back and say, so yesterday you told me about about all the stuff that you and your husband do. Now that I'm married, let me tell you, my husband's way better than your husband. Um, <laughs> and now I'm going to teach you something. <laughs> oh my so. God. That's incredible. Is that is incredible. <laughs> yeah, they're really great. Wow. How did you arrive at that topic? Just like, uh, how? How? <sighs> That's a, such a good question. And one that I feel like I should have a better answer to. Um, I think for me, it was... I, you know, as I was reading and sort of, I was in this PhD program and I knew that I wanted to work on sexuality and I was reading people writing about sexuality in these very broad abstract terms. Cause that's one thing that we can get at with mm -hmm. the documents that we have, you know? Um, and I thought that work was really enlivening, but it, it seemed to think like basically the consensus seemed to be that sex was really easy and sexuality was really hard. And so sexuality was what was interesting, right? There were all these meanings. Huh. Um, the church had things to say about sexuality, you know, law had things to say about sexuality. The stage had things to say about sexuality. Um, but sex was just a thing that people did and it wasn't that interesting because people, you know, it's not that difficult. Um, and that seemed maybe not quite right to me. I was like, I don't know, sex seems hard. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to try to, you know, do justice to to the knowledges that people have, you know, the sorts of things that we that we have to get through our daily lives. Um, and so that's sort of how I, I worked my way down to like, wow. how do people even figure out how to do this thing? Wow. Isn't he the coolest? That's so, that is so awesome. Oh man. Didn't I, I tell you? Didn't <laughs> I say? I have derailed us within the first two minutes, but I had to know. I'm sorry. I read that <laughs> right? in the outline yesterday. Right? I was like, oh my God, I need to know. I need to know. All right. Oh, so getting us back on track. Most weeks, 
<laughs> back on track after a derailment that I caused. Uh, most weeks, we discuss a different play by that nice William Carlos Shakespeare. Ooh, we're going Latin this week. That's great. And what we like to call the 101 level. But sometimes, like this week, we pick one of Shakespeare's colleagues. And this week, it's good old John Lilly. And he's a real OG, you guys. That Lilly. I don't know if you wrote he's a real OG or if I wrote he's a real I OG. Definitely I don't know who did wrote not. that. I did not. Okay, that was that. me. It seems like something I would Super. do because I just used that phrase yesterday, but I did not type yeah. that. I did not do that. I've just, <laughs> my characterization of Lily as a real OG he is, is sticking OG. with me. He really is, though. He's yeah. an OG. Um, all right. So that's, you know, introductory stuff, which is everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, like our opinions and also the device of the week. Yes. So did you like that segue? I, that was a yeah, that was super smooth, man. Super right. Smooth. So because because we're word nerds each week, we draw a random device from our handy dandy rhetorical device flashcards. And we're getting down to the dregs. We are. We have four left. Uh, For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Or rather, this week, it's Lily's speech tactics, but it's fine. So, (laughs) all right. I've got four cards. Joey, you want to say the thing? Pick a card, woeful Hebba. Thanks. Heba. Heba. That's how you say that. That's them. exactly what went through my mind. I was like, how the fuck am I supposed I to like, say that name? I think, it's, I think it's Heba. Great. Okay. I think. I bow to you on, on that because you yeah. know, we brought you on for a reason. We're bowing yeah. to your expertise. So, um, Joey, actually, why don't you go ahead and just pick a number between one and four? Three. Excellent. All right. This device this week is periphrasis. Para what? Periphrasis. P-E-R-I-P-H-R-A-S-I-S. Periphrasis. It's a form of substitution. It is the use of a descriptive word or phrase in place of a proper name. Alternately, the use of a proper name as a shorthand to stand for qualities associated with it. So, for example, in Richard II, King Richard says, As he is but my father's brother's son. Instead of saying, as he is my uncle. I guess. Father's brothers nephew yeah i am i know family trees okay uh, yeah or cousin yeah, there we go <laughs> thanks <laughs> i can math uh or another example it's got two of them on this card here ina barbus from Anthony and cleopatra says she did lie in her pavilion cloth of gold of tissue or picturing that venus where we see the fancy outwork nature so venus being used to signify Cleopatra, I guess. So if I said that someone is Falstaffian, is that para whatever? Paraphrasis? Paraphrasis? Yeah. I think it's paraphrasis. Um, I think so. Yes. Yes. The use of a proper name as a shorthand to stand for the qualities associated with it. So yes. Huh. Yes. That makes more sense. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yep, there it is. It's a cool. really obscure one that definitely wasn't on our cheat sheet when we were in grad school. Yeah, no, I've never heard it before. Nope. It's in that deck of cards, though. All right. Moving on. It's time to meet the contemporary John Lilly. This is your life. Born in 1554, that's 10 years pre Shakespeare. He was the eldest of eight children, and he was educated at Oxford. His prose fiction, Ufuiz, The Anatomy of Wit, very pleasant for all gentlemen to read, was published in 1578 and immediately made Lily the most fashionable author in England. Mm. Mm. Ufuiz is the story of a young man with, quote, more wit than wealth and yet of more wealth than wisdom, who thinks that he can succeed in the world by his inborn qualities alone and without worldly experience, so armed only with, quote, theoretical knowledge and literary precepts. Interesting. Uh, Lily started writing plays in the 1580s, and they are both good and also batshit crazy. Endymion is the story of a young man who gets put into a cursed sleep because he's spurned a lover. 
Kimpaspe is a romantic comedy about a painting. And Mother Bombi is a play that I have seen twice and I still have no idea what it's about. <laughs> but according to the internet, it's another romantic comedy situation, but maybe with like a hint of incest that's not incest? Oh, Question mark? like faux incest. Interesting. John Lilly yeah. died in 1606. So John Lilly... That was your life. Yeah. Also died 10 years before Shakespeare did. Interesting. How very interesting. Hmm. Cool guy, that John Lilly. Yeah, I, I dig him. Yeah. I dig him a lot. Yeah, for sure. So before we jump into any summaries, we always like to start with a five-word unhelpful title. Mine is Nymphs Get the Love Whammy. Love whammy is such a weird phrase, and I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so I've got surprise lesbians evade sea monster. Yay. <laughs> that one was so good. I had no ability to live up to that. Um, so mine is not funny and will only make sense if you have actually read the play, though I guess that's what these are about. Um, and so it's I fear me too fair. Mm. Those are important mm. words in the play. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that because I read the play. Yeah, you did, girl. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I also read the play, but like months ago. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's jump into some Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones. So we've got Galatea, the daughter of a shepherd. Her father is Titterus. We have Philida, a shepherd's daughter, a different shepherd's daughter. Mm -hmm. Melibaeus, her father, Philida's father. Mm. Diana, who's the goddess of the hunt and also the goddess of virginity. We have Telusa, Yarota, Ramia, and Larissa, who are her nymphs. And then, of course, Cupid, the god of desire and affection. Of course. And where there's Cupid, obviously you're going to have Neptune, who's the god of the sea. That <laughs> right. makes sense. Yeah, they go together like peas and carrots. Um, we also have Rafe, Dick, and Robin, three brothers. And then an alchemist and his servant, Peter. There's an auger who delivers auguries. Like you do. And we have Venus, the goddess of love, and also Cupid's mom. And my favorite character in maybe all of early modern drama, Heba, a village virgin. Yeah, I, I laughed it, out but... loud at her part. It was so, so... funny and so sad. <laughs> so sad. So sad. Uh, okay. Uh, so those are the uh, people. Oh. Yeah, so uh, Joey, we've asked you here this week for many reasons, but perhaps chief among them is to answer the question, why is this play so goddamn popular? Even though it's not, but it has some great shit. So tell us about that stuff. It has such great shit. Yeah, I um, I wanted to share a quote from the edition that I have because I think the editor gets this really right. Um, her name is Leah Scragg. I have the Rebels student edition, which you may also have. This is from 2012. Just remember, this is seven years ago, and she's describing the world in this way. So she says, set in a world threatened with inundation, Galatea might seem to be a parable for our time. Having violated the conditions that govern the universe in which they exist, the inhabitants of the play would, world are faced with a choice between making an intolerable sacrifice in order to preserve their way of life or falling victim to an elemental force, but are too wedded to self-interest when the issue impinges on their lives to subjugate their needs to the welfare of the community as a whole. Things have gotten so much better in the last seven years. That totally doesn't describe our world at all right now. Oh, hot um, damn. <laughs> but wow. I really do think that, you know, she's right. This play has so much in it that um, that that is of concern to people right now. Ecological disaster looms and has, has sort of shaped England. Um, there is a knowledge work economy where people are, you know, Rafe is traveling around trying to learn different jobs and it's all about learning new vocabularies and he switches careers like three times within the play, like a true millennial. Um, you know, we've got <laughs> queer desire, lesbian desire. Um, we have transgender um, issues in the play, people cross-dressing and trying to figure out what it means to, to sort of inhabit a, another gender. Um, there's lots of fear in the play. Fear is very popular right now. Um, maybe Jordan Peele will make a horror movie of yeah. Galatea. I think that would be really great. I wouldn't watch it because I hate horror films, but I really- Same. Same. Uh, <laughs> I'd look at the preview and be like, yeah, good idea, man. That's about yeah, as far I as I'd get. The trailer for us, which I felt really bad about. And I still haven't even seen Get Out, but if he made Galatea, I might do it. I might get out there. Uh, <laughs> Just like- cover your eyes yeah yeah and, i mean 
<laughs> it's also Lily, like this play should be popular because Lily was an incredibly popular writer. You know, he's mentioned in Johnson's encomium to Shakespeare's first folio. Johnson says, and tell how far thou didst our Lily outshine. Um, and there have been kind of a lot of modern productions of Galatea I was reading about, including one at the American Shakespeare Center in mm-hmm. 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot here for people to dig into. And it's a short play. It's a very quick read. Yeah. Um, and it's so good. Yeah. We're good. about to do this play uh, at camp this summer. That's one of the it's one of the three plays that we're doing uh, with our campers. So I'm really excited to see what they do. How old are your campers? They are high school age, like 13 to 19 ish. Perfect. Yeah. Because yeah. it was historically a boys play, you know, for children to be to be playing. So, yeah. summary time so we will now summarize galatea for you in a segment that this week we're calling two girls walk into a forest and fall in love hijinks ensue <laughs> okay <laughs> that's true it's very um, true all right stopwatch is ready okay i'm ready whenever you're ready take it away joey unless you have questions no let's do it all right all right Act one so Galatea's dad, Titerus, informs her that he's going to disguise her so that she won't be offered up as a sacrifice to Neptune. She says it's better to have an honorable death than a cowardly disguised life, but uh, heads off to the woods anyway as a boy. Philida's father, Melibaeus, has the same plan to save her from being the sacrifice. So Philida removes to the woods to live as a boy as well. Cupid runs into one of Diana's nymphs and flirts. When he doesn't get get it, uh, when he doesn't get to hit it with her, he decides to cause mischief. Uh, Rafe, Robin, and Dick are shipwrecked in Lincolnshire. They are bumbling. It's true. Act two: Philida and Galatea meet in the woods in disguise, and each girl resolves to learn of the other how to properly pretend to be a boy. Diana enters, hunting with her train. She asks them if they have seen her the deer she's after. They have not. Diana commands them to come with her on her hunt. Cupid plans to fuck shit up for Diana. Neptune overhears. He knows that Philida and Galatea are in disguise to outwit him and promises to take the shape of a shepherd so he can fuck shit up too. Rafe meets Peter, an alchemist's apprentice, and becomes enamored with the art. He agrees to follow the master, and Peter takes the opportunity to run away, since alchemy is mumbo-jumbo. Galatea has fallen quite in love with Philida. Philida has fallen quite in love with Galatea. Act three. Toulouse is in love with Philida and ashamed to be so as a follower of Diana. Yoroda is in love with Galatea. Ramia is in love with Galatea too. Yoroda and Ramia argue over her. Galatea and Philida speak to each other about how they are glad the other is a man. They have sworn to never love a woman, etc. It's all very gay and silly. Further in the conversation, they both fear the other is actually a maiden. Rafe has become disenchanted with a charlatan alchemist. He takes up with an astronomer instead. Diana chastens all her nymphs for being in love and sends some of them to seek out the mischief maker. Toulouse and Larissa bring in Cupid. As punishment, Diana intends to use Cupid as her slave. In Act 4, an augur lectures the villagers about their sacrifice to Neptune's monster. It's better to sacrifice one to save the many. Destroying your country is worse than destroying one daughter, etc. That kind of thing. He says to gather all the daughters, pick the fairest one, and if the monster doesn't come, then woe be y'all for hiding the fairest one. Uh, Melibaeus and Titerus argue about producing their daughters. Melibaeus says his daughter is dead, and Titerus counters that while also sort of accusing him of incest, which is a thing, because it's early modern drama uh diana's nymphs devise tasks for cupid and complain that the love knots he tied cannot be undone neptune prepares himself for the sacrifice and says that the villagers will be sorry if they try to trick him galatea and philippa pledge their love to each other as either sibling or romantic depending on their true identities because that's what we do in a forest each suspects that the other is actually a woman but thinks that their own disguise is intact and there is definitely some as you like it type rosalind as ganymede nonsense going on when Philida agrees to call Galatea mistress. They briefly discuss the sacrifice since they're both resolved not to attend, and they wander off into the woods together. Finally, Act 5. Rafe and Robin are reunited and tell tales of their adventures in apprenticeship and wandering. Um, the alchemist boy Peter arrives and tells them he can bring them to their brother Dick. Heba is led to Neptune's sacrifice. She curses her fortunes and bids farewell to the world and her parents. But the monster doesn't come, and the villagers worry over Neptune's wrath. Philida and Galatea are concerned over the lack of sacrifice. Neptune comes in, and they hide to hear what he has to say. Neptune vows to make havoc of Diana's nymphs. 
And she arrives and protests this treatment. And then Venus arrives and praises Neptune and complains about Diana's treatment of Cupid. Diana and Venus argue. Neptune arbitrates and says he'll leave Diana's nymphs alone if she returns Cupid to Venus, and they agree. Melibaeus and Titerus enter with their daughters, revealing all to everyone. The girls despair to find their loves female. They still pledge to love each other eternally, though. Venus wants to allow it and says she'll turn one of them into a boy. The fathers argue over which of them it should be. Venus says it'll be a surprise until they arrive at the church door. Rafe, Robin, and Dick bumble in, and the goddesses employ them to come and sing at the wedding. Galatea delivers an epilogue about love conquering all. Oh, wow. Adorable. Adorable. <laughs> I love this play. It's so queer, and I love it. Yeah. It's it's queer in the multiple meanings of that word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's just... queer in every sense. Yep. And I think it's it's timely and adorable and delightful and who doesn't love a sea monster in the woods? Yeah. What it's... more could you possibly want out of this play? I I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> There's so much. There's so no. much. So uh, yeah. Joey, why don't you take us through some of the stuff that you like best about this play? Yeah, go for it. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about the textual history, maybe just to give people a sense of that, um, though it's not something that I end up thinking about a lot. But um, we don't quite know when this play was written, um, but it, do it does appear in the Stationer's Register in 1585. But then the first production that we have um, any record of is from 1588 in, uh, at Greenwich Castle before the Queen. Um, there are two early print editions in 1592 and then 1632, much later, um, which you may know as the year of the first folio of Shakespeare. But the more important thing that happened is, um, oh, God, no, I've got my. It's the second folio. 32, yeah, 23 yeah. is the, I got my numbers mixed up. Happens. A little number dyslexia. Anyway, the most important thing that happens in 1632 is Lily. <laughs> Obviously, um, yes. But one of one of the, one of of the Lily's 20th century editors, Anne Lancashire, suggests that there's probably a 1584 composition date. So squarely before Shakespeare, as we say. And that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about today. One of the reasons that this play is so interesting right now is that there has been this really amazing project going on at Roehampton um, and a few other places in London called the Before Shakespeare Project that's run by uh, Andy Kesson and Lucy Monroe and some other great people over there. Um, and they have been just producing, I feel like, a wealth of, of information so about drama, not just Lily, but drama before, um, before yeah. 1590 in London. Um, and all of that, or much of it, is available online for anyone who would like to peruse it at beforeshakespeare.com. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, We've they, shouted it out before, but go check it out again because there's more now. Yeah. So good. They didn't pay us, or they didn't pay me, at least. I hope they're paying you. No, they're not. Paying us. <laughs> but we keep talking about it in hopes that we can get Andy to come on the pod at yeah. some point. We <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. He is yeah. the true Lily expert. He wrote an entire book on, on Lily, yeah. uh, mostly the, the prose fictions. Andy's amazing. So great. But, you know, so my interest in this play, I, I write about this play in, in my dissertation um, because it has so much to say about about queer desire, you know, and, um, and there have been a lot of people who've written about this play as sort of like a proto-lesbian play, right, because we have these two women, Galatea and Phyllida, who are in love with each other. That love is mediated at first, at least, you know, by the, by the cross-dressing. Um, but then even after they have revealed themselves to each other, they, they hold on to that love and they declare their love for each other, um, which has really um, been important, I think, for a lot of people who are thinking about female-female desire in the period. There's a recent reading um, uh, by Simone Chess, who is also fabulous at Wayne State University um, and who works in early modern trans studies. And she writes about this play. She has this beautiful essay on this play. It's also in her book on early modern trans, on MTF, on the early modern stage about how Galatea and Phyllida, as they are dressed as men, sort of perform labor to make the other, to, to help the other be the man that they are trying to perform to be. Um, and so there's just a lot, I think there's a lot going on about what happens with these characters when they're looking at each other and thinking about each other and also reflecting back on themselves being in these, um, these costumes, these sort of disguises that their fathers have placed onto them. And it gets really naughty and interesting. Um, I think one thing that's really, I'll, I'll say a little bit more. Um, I feel like I, I don't want to talk too much, but. Um, oh my God, talk forever. That's why you're <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. It's a weird genre. Um, one, because I'm like seeing both of you and I know your voices in my ears. Um, so it's so lovely to see you and see how this works. <laughs> but um, 
so in, in my dissertation, what I'm what I'm really interested in, um, I'll say, is is sort of the the way this play thinks about emotion and like emotion within sexual relationships, right? And so um, one of the things that the Galatea and Philida talk about a lot in the play is they're trying to perform being men is how they're not going to be able to perform the right emotions in these disguises, right? So um, in, in act two, Galatea comes out and says that she has to frame her affection to fit her habit, right? She's sort of trying to talk herself up to be a real man. She says, frame thy affection to fit thy habit. Um, and then Philida, Philida walks in and she, Galatea sort of says, oh, great, here's a real boy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch how a real boy acts and sort of hides off. And Phyllida comes in and is like, oh no, I'm never gonna be able to act this. She's all, she's all in distress. And Galatea comes out and says, oh, I perceive that boys are in as great disliking of themselves as maids, right? Which I think is this fascinating line. Um, I love it. It's so cute. Yeah, and it. also, I, I mean, she's, you know, the line is literally like, I see that, that boys are in as great disliking of themselves as maids. Um, and then she goes on to say like, oh, I'm so I'm thankful I'm not one of them. Um, which seems to imply that actually boys are in more disliking of themselves than maids, right? She'd rather be she'd rather be the maid. She doesn't want to be as upset as Philida is. Um, but they both throughout the play are sort of trying to figure out how they feel about each other um, and how how um, the other person feels about them. There's a great scene later on when um, Galatea is sort of thinking about Philida and how Philida has rebuffed Diana's nymphs, and she says, "Well, either." this boy is too naive to know anything about love. Like he didn't realize that the nymphs were in love with him or he thinks he's too good for them. Right. And she's trying to figure out which one of them it is so that she can maybe sort of like get in there. Um, and those I think are really, I think, I think that's one thing that Lily is really good at surprisingly people talk about Lily's plays, I think as being a little flat um, because they're very monologue heavy and they're, they're more prosy than Shakespeare's plays, but I think that he's actually really great at getting into characters' heads and letting them work out on stage, um, you know, what they feel about other characters and how that's going to affect their lives going forward. I love so that. Cool. Yeah. I love, I love this play. I love this play. Yeah. Um, so I see you also have some notes here about early modern boys companies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can talk a little bit. Yeah. About let's talk um, production. So, yeah. So this play, um, unlike um, Shakespeare's plays, this play was originally um, written for a boys' company, right? So um, boys, I think between the ages of like six and 16, I'm definitely going to get myself in trouble here. I'm not a proper theater historian, so I'm going to say something that um, people are going to be mad at me for on the internet probably. Um, but um, boys from about six to 16 um, that were in school, that were sort of like in, conscripted into these, um, into these companies, especially in the 80s, as choir boys, they also were taught to sing, um, but then they would put on these plays, both for the queen at court or at various palaces. This was performed at Greenwich Castle uh, at first, um, and also in um, a couple of indoor theaters in London for public audiences. So this was performed at Blackfriars Theater, mm -hmm. the Blackfriars Theater, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people have, like, it, there's so much written on boys playing female parts in, in early modern uh, uh, theater. But one thing that's really fascinating about this play, I think, um, and in boys' companies drama in general, is that you have boys playing basically every parts. Sometimes I think, I think theater historians think that maybe some of the parts, um, uh, some of the adult parts might have been taken on by the, um, the adults that were running the companies every mm -hmm. once in a while, but generally it's the boys playing these parts. And you can see... Um, a boys, a, a modern boys company production of Galatea that was put on by um, uh, King Edward School, Edward School in England, um, Prince Edward School, something British, but Edward is in the name. <laughs> uh, um, it's online and it's really incredible, you know, because they are like school age boys. It's an all boys school, I think. Um, and it's kind of amazing to watch. I don't know if either of you have gotten the chance to see any productions that had young boys playing women's parts. But I had read for years all this scholarship and I knew it, like I know that people are interested in boys playing women and what that does to like desire on the early modern stage and everything that looks heteroerotic is actually homoerotic because the women are really boys. But then I watched like a two minute clip from Galatea, from this, this Edwards boys production of Galatea and it blew my mind because I couldn't figure out if I was looking, I think it's a clip of Philida that they have online for free. 
And mm. um, I couldn't figure out if I was looking at the boy who was playing the part or if I was looking at the boy who was playing or if I was looking at Philida or if I was looking at Philida in playing a boy. And it just, I knew all of that intellectually and then seeing even just two minutes of it, um, it sort of blew me away and it blew my students away when I taught this play last year. They were very concerned about the fact that um, there are a lot of sex jokes in this play and that the boy's parents would have been in the audience, <laughs> um, uh, at least in the modern production. I'm not sure that's Aww. necessarily true in, in the early modern production. Sure. But, uh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Cute. Yeah. yeah, Edward's boys are doing a lot of stuff. They show up in my Twitter feed all the freaking time being like, come see our show of this thing or that thing or the other thing. Mm. It's a lot of Lily, I think, that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that they're makes great. sense. Yeah. 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 Um, just to add on to that from a really practical production perspective, as I was reading, a few things just jumped out at me. There's a ton of exposition just delivered by all of these characters, of course, um, but especially for the three worlds. And then there's also, I think Lily relies a lot on the audience's pre-knowledge of Greek mythology and like being kind of, it feels kind of like embedded in it, like you're expected to know kind of who some of these gods and and people are. Um, So it kind of felt unbalanced that way in, in in a weird way to me, like we're delivering a ton of exposition, but also you should already know some of this stuff. Um, so that needs to be clear for an audience, not, you know, for a modern audience, not everybody is going to know um, who all of these deities are. Uh, also, so I guess I did pick up on the incest thing being mm-hmm. a thing. Okay. So yeah. then I guess, I, then I guess it becomes a production choice of like whether you want to take that father's comment literally and play that through and have that one father be, I forget which dad now, be, Melibaeus. Oh, thank you, be overly affectionate at the beginning so that there actually is something to talk about or whether you just want to let Titterus, um, well, his name almost says it, doesn't it? Like Titter, you know, mm-hmm. maybe um, just it, it's all in his head and he's, you know, just trying to get his, the other guy's daughter to be the sacrifice. I don't know. Yeah, I, I took it as a tactic. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't think there was anything okay. textual to it. Okay. I just had this previously. when I was reading, I was like, whoa, was that happening? And did I miss it in act one? Like, yeah. um, okay. So, I mean, it's still, it's a, it's a production choice. It's living there now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I, I don't know, maybe give people some, some dramaturgical materials like in the program or a lobby display that like helps you out, especially with the, uh, the Roman deities um that's what i was thinking of and yeah the gender bending and the hilarity i uh you know it had not occurred to me joey and uh, until you reminded us that this would have been a boy again very rosalind like a boy playing a girl dressed up as a boy who would rather be a girl and they like wow 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 like my brain is tied into not just thinking about that but that's really fun that's really fun to play with so yeah. I, I love that. One of the things that's better about this play, I mean, I write about this play um, actually in my dissertation with As You Like It, of course. Mm-hmm, um, and this was really sort of one of the um, the sources for As You Like It. Mm-hmm. And I love As You Like It. But one thing that I think is better about Galatea is that like the equivalent to Celia's role like is a full role here. Like mm-hmm. you get both of the women like really getting to talk to each other and voice their desires. Yeah. Um, where Celia gets um, um, rudely sidelined in in Shakespeare's play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, any final thoughts, or is it game time? I think we could play a game. Game time. <laughs> so the game this week is line roulette. It's our favorite game to play with our guests. Uh, so what's going to happen is I'm going to roll these here dice and I'm going to deliver an act scene and line number for Joey. And then he gets 60 seconds to say why that single line encompasses the entire play. Oh, your face. It's going to be fine. You got this. You got this. Yes. Alrighty. So Joey, we are looking for uh, not act six. There is no act six. Still not act six. Act three. Okay. And we'll go with, uh, do we have a scene three? Um, yes. Great. Okay. So act three, scene three, mm-hmm. line 22. Great. This is prose. Can I get a little on this? Yeah. Either side because it's yes. prose. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Do the full yeah. sentence. That's fine. Wonderful. Okay. So this is um, a Rafe line. You have given me um, one of the hardest things, I think, in that this is like the C plot of a play. <laughs> Excellent. <with many> <laughs> 
Should I read the line Please before do. you start? Yes. What is yeah, the line? Okay. Okay. So we have, this is Rafe. Nay, if you must weigh your fire by ounces and take measure of a man's blast, you may then make of a dram of wind a wedge of gold and of the shadow of one shilling make another. So as you have an organist to tune your temperatures. Whoa. That's quite a line. <laughs> that might be one of the hardest lines we've ever had during this game. Great. Do you, do you think you can do it? Do you need a moment to compose your thoughts before yeah, we officially start the timer? You know, in a um, in a very well uh, written in copy of my play, I have literally marked absolutely nothing next to this line. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just see what happens. Okay. Sorry. All right. Well, Great. whenever you're ready, I'll start the timer. So. Yep. Okay, sure. I guess I'm as ready now as I will ever be. <laughs> Take it away. Um, so this is this is happening actually right in the very middle of the play. Um, so therefore, it's always the most important line because it's right in the middle of the play. Um, but Rafe is talking to this is a scene in which he's talking to the alchemist, right? So he's trying to learn from the alchemist how to turn um, things into gold. Um, and you know, I think there's something about this play that like it's it's sort of a make the best of your situation play, right? Where like your father. Um, thinks you're going to be sacrificed to a god, but maybe we can make the best of the situation and dress you up as a boy and, and push you off into um, the forest. And that's sort of what Rafe is, is doing here, right? Thinking about alchemy, you make the best of what you have. You may make then of a dram of wind a wedge of gold. Um, and like alchemy, it doesn't actually always work out in the end. Um, you can run off to the forest and um, think that you're going to be saved, but maybe, in fact, you fall in love with something else and it turns into something beautiful that you didn't even predict at the beginning. Amazing. You nailed it. Nailed it. Well that, done. That was amazing. Well done with two seconds to spare. Good job. It's like when my, it's like when my students ask me questions about political history. That's sort of just... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Make it up as you go along. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's my favorite pedagogical tactic is making shit up. Absolutely. Just kidding. I always thoroughly research all of my lectures. I never lie to my students. No. I wouldn't you don't know. lie. You just no. make the best of what you have available. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yes. I, I reach into the depths of my brain and I pull out something and I spin it into something substantial. Absolutely. Although yeah, straight up exactly. lying to students is fun sometimes. Not about like important information for class, sure. but like when they ask you dumb shit, like about your own life, it's fun to lie to them. <laughs> I say this as a disgruntled ex high school teacher. Um, <laughs> my students generally don't ask me about my own life. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, I generally don't tell them about my high own life. schoolers have fewer boundaries and they're just like, miss, what is your life? I'm like, <gasps> I, I I don't know. I live on a mountain range with goats. I'm like, yes, you do. You know, I just—it's fun to lie to them. <laughs> anyway, we're learning lots about me today. That's great. Uh, should we gossip? Yeah. So, Joey, what are you working on right now? Besides, you know, your dis your incredible sounding dissertation and your shiny new job. Is there anything else exciting coming up on the horizon for you? Yeah, I guess I feel like I'm in a weird position in my life, but um, I the next thing that is happening soon for me and that is giving me nightmares every single night, it turns out, um, is that at the Shakespeare Association of America conference, which you two will be at, I'm very yes, excited we about, will. this whole podcast will be present in a digital exhibit. <laughs> yep. Um, I will be giving a talk on the Next Generation Plenary Panel. Yes, you will. Um, which I'm very excited about and also um, very, very nervous about um, because I think this year, SAA, they're saying something like a thousand people. 1,500, I think. Wow. Oh, thank yeah. you for, thank yeah. you for sorry, making sorry. it bigger. No, <laughs> Jesus, Jess. Only 200 people are there. It's, yeah. No, it's only two. It's just me and Aubrey. We're the only people showing up. So. Great. Well, it'll be lovely to give my talk to you too. Yay. Um, but, Can we yeah. just, like, this is such a huge deal and it's so exciting and thrilling for you. And the morning that the SAA bulletin came out, Joey texted me and was like, oh, hey, congratulations on you guys being a digital exhibit. And I was like, yeah, thanks, man. And then four hours later, read it and was like, way to bury the lead, Joey. <laughs> You've been a next gen plan. Come on. So oh. I'm excited for you. When is that one? It's not while we're exhibiting, no, is it? No, Will we be able to go see thing. it? 
the only thing that happens at that time. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, they've really got it set up so people will come. I think it's at 11 a.m. on Saturday if mm-hmm. you happen to be at the conference. Awesome. The other people, there are four other people on the panel, and they're going to be giving incredible papers. Such um, a good lineup. It's so good. I, I only, off the top of my head, I think I've only met in person Andrew Keener before, but I'm really excited to meet everyone else. And probably Andrew is going to get up there and say that he, like, found a new Lily play or something <laughs> like he knows so much about books. Um, so you should all, everybody who's listening, I think should come to the panel. If you will be at SAA, it'll be really great. And then I'll talk for like nine and a half minutes and then you don't have to ask me any questions after. <laughs> I'm asking every question, but they're all going to be softballs. Oh, so, thank you. Thank I you. you. I got you. I just want to help you show off. Oh man. Oh, that's so exciting. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Joey, he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, don't you want to just listen to him talk about his work all day? Because Actually, I do. Yeah. Yes. Right? I, yes, I this do. This is what I was saying. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to read your dissertation. It sounds fascinating. Um, all right. So we have some other gossip, some really exciting news coming out of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival uh, this past week. They finally hired a new artistic director. Her name is Nataki Garrett. Um, she's originally, well, I don't know where she's originally from, but she most recently was the associate artistic director of the Denver Center of the Performing Arts. Um, woohoo women of color in powerful positions at huge regional theaters. This is really, really awesome. She's going to officially begin her tenure as the new AD there in 2020. Although she is, I think I read that she's coming in, uh, this year, she will be directing a show, um, for this season, uh, while, while Bill Roush kind of finishes up. So just some interesting stuff about her from her bio on her website. Uh, Garrett is a world-class director having worked at Dallas theater, Cal shakes, Ford's theater, Steppenwolf, Denver Center for the Performing Arts Company, Woolly Mammoth, Mixed Blood Theater, Pasadena Playhouse, California Institute of the Arts, aka Cal Arts, and I think that's where she also got her degrees, or at least one. Uh, NYU Tisch School of the Arts, Philadelphia Theater Company, and Baltimore Center Stage. She has, yeah, she's got quite a resume. Uh, She has worked internationally at the Rockefeller. Bellagio Study and Research Center in Italy. She's been at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and the Le, Lab- Le Labo Theater in Paris. She also traveled to Rwanda and Uganda as an artistic ambassador for the purpose of creating authentic artistic connections. She is, uh, as you can, as you're hearing, she is an accomplished arts administrator, um, having served as the former associate artistic director of Denver Center for the Performing Arts. So I think, wow. Um, OSF is super lucky to have this woman. She sounds incredible and I can't wait to see what she does over there. So that's really cool. What is this thing? So I found this article, this other thing, uh, it, it popped up on my Facebook feed yesterday while I was looking at this outline. So I threw it up on here and if we want to talk about it, we can, um, Oh my God. It is yet another article, uh, positing and I, you know, maybe it's the same one that just goes around and around and around again, but this one was dated like. I don't know, last week, like 18th of March or something. Yeah. Um, it's article about Shakespeare's sexuality and his sonnets and claiming that, you know, the, the whole fair youth, dark lady thing again. Uh, and I thought it was particularly relevant uh, for this podcast today since Galatea is so queer and we were talking about things of that nature. So I, I threw it up there uh, if we if we want to talk about it, if we feel like it's worth talking about. I mean... <laughs> I feel like I should throw it to Joey first, but sure. my take on this is that like, why, why, why are we, why? That's kind because of what I was one, thinking too. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And two, our conception of sexuality is so fucking different than the early modern conceptual yeah. conception of sexuality. So like applying our labels to Shakespeare yeah. means nothing. Well, this article has an answer for that and a sassy one at that. Um, <laughs> it, this No, this article took the time to like counter all of the classic arguments about why this is either irrelevant or wrong. And that's one of them, right? Being oh. and it and it has an answer for that if you'd care to read it. Um, well, but, I mean I literally just saw it. Yeah. So um, Yeah, I thought it yeah. was I thought it was like a better version of this thing that goes around a lot. And it also seemed to me to be, I mean, my question was like why? Like why right now? 
Mm-hmm. Is anybody really like continuing to say other than I think like Brian Vickers and DLS, <laughs> like it was like mostly a, yeah. about like rebutting Brian Vickers. Um, but I was, it's funny. I realized that Sandra Newman wrote this article and I don't know if either of you like follow her on Twitter or have read her work. She's yeah. a novelist. Um, and she just had a novel come out this year or late last year called The Heavens, which I have not read yet, but that is getting really great press and is apparently about like Amelia Lanyard. Um, oh, sure. Somewhere. Who is that? Um, I'm sorry. Take me with she, you. She's the subject of um, that play that's in the West End, question mark now, that's just called Amelia. Yeah. Ooh, oh, 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 yeah. oh, yeah. Uh, she's also she she is on that giant list of people who maybe wrote Shakespeare's plays. She's also been thrown out as a candidate for the dark lady. Um, mm, okay. Also, she is an incredible poet in her own right. Uh, I'm yeah. teaching her next week. Oh, cool. yeah. Sally Davis is a, the sonnet sequence that, that she wrote is like one of the most incredible pieces of poetry, I think from the period. Um, so apparently this novel is like, really fascinating and in some ways about Amelia Lanier. I think it's about like, I was reading about this today, a woman who um, lives right now, but then when she goes to sleep, she like dreams that she's Amelia Lanier. And so there are these like elaborate dream sequences. Um, But Sandra Newman, I didn't, I didn't do this, but I thought for a while that I would have a quote from her Twitter as the epigraph to the chapter where I talk about Galatea actually, because she has a very funny Twitter um, um, and I totally recommend it. Um, And she, she said one day, can we just agree that if it has two guys in it, it's homoerotic, um, <laughs> which I thought like really powerfully captured the the wide uh, meanings of homoeroticism. <laughs> um, but yeah, amazing. All right, well, I will read this article and right. perhaps revise my statements. Yeah, on I'll throw a link up to why. it on our on our landing page for this episode. I just again, yeah, I had the same kind of thought. I'm like, why are we still arguing this? The dude's dead. Like. Super dead. But like, why, why? But I don't know. They seem to, this this author, who'd you say it was? Sandra Newman. Sa- yeah, seemed to feel seemed to feel the need was urgent again to, to rehash all that. So I maybe, mean, I want maybe worth reading. to be gay always, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Here we go. <laughs> it's Dick I, Brackett I'm time. S- I'm so glad that this is the last time we ever have to hear that noise. Hey, you guys are the um, ones who wanted it in the first place. Not you, not you guys, Joey. I mean, you and Molly, actually. It was you and Molly Ceramet who were like, hey, keep doing that. That's great. Yeah, but it's, Be it, careful it's what gone you wish around for. the bed. Has it? <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, so we are, we are into the final, the final. We're into mm-hmm. the final. Yep. So last, last week's matchup uh, was Tamburlaine versus the Duke from Revenger's Tragedy and surprising literally no one. Yeah. Tamburlaine walked away with that, although it was not as much of a landslide as I thought it was going to be. Mm. So there's that. So yeah. And this week, final matchup. this week it's the final matchup. It is Tamburlaine versus the brothers Malfi. That's right. Tamburlaine, the guy who uses people as furniture versus the brothers Malfi. And at least one of those guys thinks he's a werewolf. I'm going to keep saying it because I still think it's relevant. I mean, it's not relevant to dickishness, but it is relevant to awesomeness. Yeah. So that's the final matchup in this bracket. That's the showdown to end all showdowns. Any, any initial thoughts about that, Joey? This one's a really hard one for me because I, I think that I would vote the brothers Malfi, but I really don't like, the play Tamburlaine, like oh, at all, or either of them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my least favorite Marlowe play. Um, I want to be convinced otherwise. I need to go back and reread it. Um, but I might end up voting Tamburlaine just so that play loses by winning. Sure. <laughs> mm, mm, I see what uh, you're saying. Yeah. We, we have, I think, just decided that we're going to do Tamburlaine one and two in a single episode that's going to open season three. Mm. Yeah. Spoilers for everyone. Ooh, a little teaser. Or yeah, not a spoiler, but a teaser. A teaser. Come on back to to listen to us yeah. talk about Tamberlane's dickishness over two plays. Woof. Yeah, because we're definitely not doing two separate episodes. No. 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 Can't nope. can't do it. So there That's it a is. Lot of Tamberlane. Oh god. There it is, folks. Tamberlane versus the Brothers Malfi. Get out there and vote. It's gonna be intense. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe others will feel as torn as you do, Joey. I'm not quite sure. 
So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. And thank you, Joey, so, so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, you can find him on the Twitters at JMGMBL or visit his website at jmgamble.com. Thank you Go check for out. having oh, me. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, my so God. Come back anytime. Literally yeah. anytime. Anytime. You, whatever you want to talk about, you come back and we will build an episode around it. If you're like, <laughs> hey, I want to talk about just like sex manuals. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. yes. We will make an episode about sex manuals. Yep. We will do, do that. Yes, that is I really do have some things to say about sex manuals. Oh my God. Oh my God. Come back and talk about sex <laughs> manuals. We're going to do it. I'm just, I'm going to schedule it in. We're going to call it Sex Manuals 101. Oh my God. Boom. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. So the, I guess also tune in next week for everyone's favorite forgotten Shakespeare history play, Edward Third. You've never heard of it. Nope. But it's awesome. It's so good, you guys. It's really... It's really, I like it. I like it a lot. Can't wait so. to read it. All right, take us out with that quote. Uh, so this is from this is from my my dear dear Heba. Um, when she's tied up to the tree, they're trying to sacrifice her to Neptune uh, or to to the Agar, um, his monster. Um, but she's not. She's actually not pretty enough for him to come eat. But <laughs> she's she's giving them all a farewell to her life. So she says, "Farewell, you chaste virgins, whose thoughts are divine, whose faces fair, whose fortunes are agreeable to your affections." Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow or on Twitter at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. I got six six packs in a pink Cadillac, $10,000 in a sack in the bag. It costs 35 I don't aim to use back. I got no bullets, just a wheel to whack. Can you say it one more time? Oof, oof, oofuies? I think it's oofuies. I was oofuies. looking this up before, and the internet said oofues, which I disagree with. I think it's Great. Oofuies. Yes, <laughs> I very strategically made you go first, and then I was like, they <laughs> can say it, and then I'll say it. Okay, so oofuies or oofuies. Oofuies? Where, where's the stress? I think the first syllable. Oofuies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ah, so it's trochaic. All right.